Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So, um, as you know, I have done a lot of reading of Dara Murku's works. And in one of his books, he refers to a writer, he's a British writer, who doesn't have a very scholarly name. Mm-hmm. His name is Nick Page. <laughs> you would think that he, he would, if he was particularly being British, mm-hmm. he would be Sir Nicholas. That's right. Page, yeah. It's only Nick Page. Hmm. And I have been reading some of his works, about three of his books. Hmm. And um, I'm reading a book of his called The Wrong Messiah, The The Real Story of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I think makes it so very difficult for us to appropriate and use I mean, we do it, but I think the people who hear us teach about Jesus' teachings reflexively come into the meeting with the assumptions that Jesus lived in the kind of world we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't. Right. So um, he was part of that large bottom of the pyramid that you've talked about many times where um, so many people in that grouping, in that population were were seen as enemies to other tribal groups. Right. Uh, the Jews who collaborated with the Romans were seen as enemies of fellow Jews. And um, people that you owed money to were seen as enemies because they could come and take everything from you. And so I just, I want to lift that up maybe this Sunday as well to say that when Jesus is talking about enemies, those people had a lot of people who didn't like them, Mm -hmm. who were against them, who oppressed them. And um, so here's this guy who's coming in saying, love your enemies, which is... um, it's not about us um, loving the Russians. <laughs> it's about really um, who's your neighbor, and that's what he. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking that the the two questions that keep tossing around in my head are, um, you know, I, I thought of that verse: "Love your enemy." I'm sorry, love your neighbor as yourself, which is the golden rule, and then this one: "Love your enemy." And I, the two that my, that those are in the same hand in a way, who is your neighbor and who is your enemy? And sometimes, you know, when I think about, so to just apply it to very current events, when I think about who were the people who um, got it in their minds to storm the Capitol, were our neighbors, you know? And in other words, you know, I mentioned on Sunday that these were folks who were some elected officials, some were policemen, some were doctors, teachers, CEOs. These are people that we think 
in our sort of middle class world, they live, they could live right next door to us. And um, they honestly believed right. a lie. Yeah. They believed that the election had been stolen from them. Right. And uh, I think that if they had succeeded in doing what they attempted to do, mm -hmm. we would very likely feel that the election was stolen from us. Yes. And that's, that's what the kind of wrestling that I'm doing this week is, um, I don't, I want to be really clear. I don't think there's any way we can say that. Okay, let me back up. I was thinking about what does it mean to love? And um, so to, to back up a little bit, I was thinking about the idea of fierce love. Um, what does fierce love look like? And maybe we can get into that a little bit. But one of the things that I think about with fierce love is that it does not mean approval. That to love someone doesn't always mean that you approve of or even accept the actions that they did, right? So I, I you know, one, one of the things I think you and I would both be very clear on is what happened is not okay. Under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. It also is an outcome of a system that still operates, even though different than Jesus's time in tribal mentalities. And this kind of us and them, us versus them, um, they, that the people who, who felt righteous enough to storm the Capitol felt as if something was being taken from them. I, I don't approve of that behavior. I don't accept that behavior. There's nothing in me that thinks that what they did was right. So I'm thinking about the ways that loving our neighbor and or enemy doesn't equal approval. And uh, so it, it, the, we did some very hard territory here. Yeah. Um, it is an indisputable fact that for the first 320 years or 25 years of the Jesus movement, Followers of Jesus were pacifists. They were non-violent pacifists. That's indisputable. Mm -hmm. But by 325 or so, they had also been blessed, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. by becoming a, um, the, the eventually, not immediately, um, but eventually becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. which Constantine did because he wanted to, to unite the empire. And Christians started killing each other mm -hmm. to bring about this uniformity. So anyway, uh, if you back way, way, way up and look at what the Jesus narratives say about Jesus himself, uh, he had a couple of zealots as his disciples. Mm -hmm. And zealots were committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman occupying force. Mm -hmm. And so did they have a conversion of some sort and decide to be on Jesus' side? Or was there some other thing at work? It's mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. So anyway, I want to go. I, I want. I want to go back to this thing that that you saying about love the neighbor. Um. 
I didn't check with you about this before Sunday, but I think I'd have to go back and look. I gave a title to what we're going to do this Sunday. I think it was something about letting the enemy love you. Mm, interesting. Because when Jesus was challenged about, okay, who is my neighbor? He told a story mm -hmm. about a man who was beaten beside the road going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was indeed a dangerous place to be. That sort of thing happened frequently. And he set it up like a joke. You know, three blind mice, three little pigs, mm -hmm. uh, three religious people walk by and do nothing. And then comes along this Samaritan who is the hated enemy of the Jews, not because the Samaritans were violent, evil, wicked, bad, robbing people, but because they were unclean. Right. And coming in contact with somebody who is unclean put you outside the community. You talk to a Samaritan, let a Samaritan come into your house your, your entire house was unclean. That meant you were out of the community and you had to go back to the um, priest and get clean, which cost money. Right. So the Samaritans were seen as really bad people. And so this guy's beat up. And the Samaritan does what no Jew would want. He comes and touches him. Mm -hmm. He binds up his wings. He picks him up, puts him on his donkey, whatever he has, <clears throat> and takes him to an inn and pays for everything. Mm -hmm. This is probably the, the most radical teaching Jesus ever offered, which is let your neighbor love you. Mm. Gosh, I go straight to like, what is it like to be a mother um, and how so many mothers I know myself included, maybe especially myself included, have such a difficult time asking for help, asking for um, love to be, there's a lot of energy that goes out as a mother. And I'm not suggesting that that's not true for fathers too, but um in, in, in our household, I, I am, have been the primary caregiver for um, our three boys for a long time. And there's a lot of energy that goes out. And Josh is really, really, really good at asking me, well, what do you need? What do you need to come back in? And I'm really, really, really bad at naming. Here's what I need and how I can receive love. Josh, of course, is not my enemy. But what you're speaking to is the difficulty that we have in, in vulnerability and in allowing for someone else to care for us in our resistance, mm -hmm. someone else to love us in our resistance. There's a kind of joke that someone told me when I became a mother was, um, um, you know, the sort of trope of mothering is there's only so many people fit in the car. Um, so the car is full and mom says, oh, that's okay. Let everybody else go ahead and get in the car. I'll just run along behind. <laughs> right. So that sort of tendency to go, um, 
to self-sacrifice. Or my mother, my mother, when we were growing up, um, one of her best dishes that she made was fried chicken. Mm -hmm. And of course, the men in the family all love the breast and the pulley bone and all that. Mm -hmm. And my mother would say, it's okay, I like the neck. <laughs> I, I, I want to go to a really hard place. Mm -hmm. I have not listened to the news today. I don't know what's going on. I know there is a movement to um, impeach the president. I don't know where that's going. And I did hear yesterday, just a little, mm -hmm. that they have made some arrest of people who were the perpetrators mm -hmm. of the violence on the Capitol. And I think now five people have died. And I've seen the, the faces of those angry, angry, angry protesters and the, the glee that they had in doing what they did. Right. Wrecking the place, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's mm -hmm. chair, sitting mm -hmm. on the, the dais, um, taking a speaker stand. And mm -hmm. I have to confess, I'm scared of those people. Right. And I'm scared of what the mm -hmm. authorities have said could be coming this weekend. Right. In other places in the country. And it's real easy for me to get into thinking, they're my enemy. How am I going to let them love me? You know, gosh, that's so, I mean, I, I don't, I can't pretend to have an answer, but I have the ideas that come to mind about the ethos of what you're asking, which is first to go back to the behaviors um, of, of wrecking and storming. So the first question is what did, what have they and what will they do with their anger? And it is, there's another truth in love, I think that you know that another part of the bible says love is not angry and i think that's not true i think very often acts of love come from a place of anger so here's an example that i would use um i feel angry about injustice and or racism when i see it i want to respond in anger um, but that anger, when I sit with it, actually leads me toward what can I do? Um, and the reason I feel angry about it is because I so love my Black husband, my brown children, other brothers and sisters in my life who I work alongside with toward justice. And, 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 and so I'm angry, but if I sit with that anger, I can transform my behaviors into acts of love. If I go back out and storm the temple and and slash the papers onto the floor and bring zip ties to my enemies, I'm not acting from love, I'm acting from anger. So the, the people who stormed the palace, so to speak, also felt feel angry, but there's no pause. Their, their actions are not anger transformed into productive behavior. Their actions are angry actions. And so I think a fierce kind of love for looking, being an outside looking in is, is naming that. Those are not actions based on love. Those are actions based on untransformed anger. 
-hmm. where else am I going with this? I guess the, the other part is um, this evocation of fear. And I don't know what I have to say about that, but I think that the, that, that, that the fear that any of us who feel like an observer, a watcher, and maybe even a bystander is very real. And so it's very hard to connect with love when you feel afraid of something or someone. Um, you know, I when you said, uh, you don't know who you're going with this, that gave me permission to ramble. <laughs> ramble on. <laughs> ramble on. So I look at the pictures of the protesters in the White House and I see the Confederate flag and I see people who are actively is supporting Nazism. Nuremberg camp, uh, what, what was it, Auschwitz camp. Mm -hmm. Years ago, we went to Germany and we went to Nuremberg. And we had a guide who was born in Germany. His father was in the service there, married a German woman. He was born of that marriage. And even though his father came back to the United States, his parents came back to the United States, he loved Germany and went back and lived there and ended up marrying and having a family. And he, he was our guide for the time that we were in Nuremberg. And up until then, I, I could say I have never had a, a guide on a trip teach me as much as he did. He made, he made what happened in, in Nuremberg and the rise of Hitler really uh, help me understand why that happened. <clears throat> Germany had just come out of World War I. They were broke. They had no sense of future. They were really, as a country, uh, very depressed in every way. And this idiot got them to come together and said, well, I, can, I can make something out of you. And it touched something in those people. They wanted to be something. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. okay, the protesters in our capital mm -hmm. want that. They want to feel significant and that they matter. And I, I truly believe that many of them honestly felt like the election was taken away from them. That motivated them to do what they did. And I, I, I'm going to go one step further. On the, on the way back from that trip to Germany, we stopped in Luxembourg. Luxembourg is this kind of small country where George Patton is buried. And we went to the cemetery where he's buried. And it's traumatic. We, we drove in and got out of the vehicle and walked up over this rise. And there in front of us, were acres of mm -hmm. white crosses of men who died protecting the United States and the world from mm -hmm. Nazism. And I'm a pacifist. 
but I'm so glad mm -hmm. they did that. And I just had this involutional sobbing mm. that came up out of me when I saw that. What a tragic, tragic loss on both sides. But the loss of, of kids, some of them were 16, 17, who, who fought and died to protect us from something that was in our Capitol yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, I've, I've asked myself this question a lot, whether I'm a pacifist or not. Um, because as you point out, on the one hand, we give thanks for service in the armed forces. And we say we're so grateful that people like Adolf Hitler were taken down and taken out of power. And that only came through non-pacifist activities, right? So it's weird to feel grateful for that and then say, and I'm a pacifist. I, I wrestle with that because- um, me, too, me too. Yeah, because I asked myself, well, what, what would I be willing to sort of proverbially go into battle for? And what are the ways in which we battle? And, um, you know, I think about, it, it's, I cannot think about this passage, love your enemies without thinking about Martin Luther King. And, and then therefore Gandhi and their commitment to nonviolence as a, as a movement, as a, as a way of doing battle, right? That commitment to nonviolence, to protest, to speak against violence. Um, it took longer, um, it didn't hit as hard. Um, these people who were nonviolent activists were hit over the head, they were beaten, they, they had food thrown at them. I think of the many images we have from the 60s of um, black folks sitting at counters with mm -hmm. ketchup and mayonnaise and food on their bodies and, and the enjoyment that the abusers took in, in doing it. You see glee in their faces, right? A power, a hunger in their faces for um, that sense of domination. And yet, these folks remained committed to nonviolent battle. And I'm using battle in quotations. Um, and, you know, Martin Luther King's very famous saying of you can't drive out hate with hate. You can only drive out hate with love. Um, you can't drive out violence with violence. You can only drive out violence with nonviolence. So having to show someone something else, a different way of doing something. Um, I also don't know, so if I say I'm a pacifist, could I be that person sitting at the counter with non-reactivity? I mean, talk about a commitment to a daily spiritual practice that these folks need, must have had and a group ethos that they must have had to not react to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how quick are we to react when, um, when someone hits us on, by accident, for example, and we want to turn around and we go into flight, I'm sorry, we go into fight mode so easily when we feel like we've been trespassed upon. And I, I you know, so again, I, I guess I'm just kind of holding the difficulty of that to be grateful for a war that was fought and, to, and on the other side of it, be able to call myself a pacifist. I don't know, I don't know if I am. And, how would I do battle 
how am I doing battle even right now in the moment when I feel angry about what happened last week, when I feel angry about the history of this country that has led up to what happened last week for and for a, a group of mostly white folks to feel angry, afraid, and in, in their minds, legitimately incensed that something is being taken away from them. And while we're talking, we are living in a state where even now to this mm -hmm. very day, steps are being taken to, to suppress vote, to keep people of color from voting in yeah. this state right now. Yeah. And, and, and I look at the, the fact of what's coming out of Austin about these movements to restrict voter registration and all that sort of thing. And I think, are you idiots not learning anything? Mm -hmm. This is only going to inflame things more mm -hmm. on the parts of those who feel dispossessed. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, it's like, as we say, you know, who, who are the dispossessed? And in this case, in my mind, it's very clear who are the actual dispossessed. It's people who have been historically marginalized since the inception of this project we call democracy, right? Um, it was women, it, it was black folks, it was uh, Native Americans, it was um, immigrants, you know, and, and, and gradually some people, you know, I was reminded the other day that, you know, Irish and Italians were, uh, upon entry into this country, not considered white. And somehow they sort of got adopted into this group of whiteness, right? Um, so it, it became in this country very binary about white and black. Um, but, and yet there are these white folks, these, and I, I want to, challenge calling them protesters. I don't think they're protesters. I think they're rioters. Uh, the, the folks who stormed the Capitol last week. Well, you, you, yeah, you made that point uh, really well uh, last week. And, and I'm thinking that one of the places where we can go to look for some answers to a very perplexing issue is in the arena of engaged Buddhism. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And say more about that, like kind of what, what's coming up for you in that way. Well, um, engaged Buddhism, first of all, would say don't embrace any doctrine so firmly that it provokes or incites mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I gave a talk, as you know, on this Monday for the Jung Center. Yeah. And, um, I haven't heard back from very many people about how it went, but I have enough that I'm very pleased about that. And, you know, um, my favorite quote from Carl Jung, one that, one that um, changed or set the direction of my entire professional life is a quote where he said, the solution for our difficulty is a religious one. Mm -hmm. And he didn't mean religion as we think about religion. Right. What he meant was the things that the living religions have given their adherents throughout the ages. And I keep going back to what I have learned from Karin Armstrong and others 
about what I call the evolution of right religion. You referred to it a few minutes ago. It's the golden rule. Mm -hmm. It don't do to somebody what you would not want done to you. Mm -hmm. We don't practice that as a culture. No. And we're going to keep getting the same outcomes we've gotten until we learn how to do that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think something that's sort of becoming clear to me as we sit here and talk is, is that um, is a third thing that I think about love and, and what does it mean to be, to love our neighbor and our enemies that um, love is struggle. Uh, James Baldwin said that uh, uh, one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Safran Foer wrote that love is struggle to be in this question of how do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I love my enemy is to be in struggle. And I don't think we're going to come away from this podcast, for example, today offering any, um, any like step one, you do this, step two, you do this, because we too are in the struggle and grappling with what does this mean right now for us to turn, you know, in the beginning of this verse is to offer our coat to the one who has taken our coat. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because, um, that does not mean in our culture what it meant in the culture of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to look at what those particular teachings about turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give your undergarment if you're asked to give your outer garment, and find ways to translate those into our culture. Because if we try to take them in some sort of literal way uh, for our culture, we're, we're we're going to miss it. Yeah. It's kind of like being willing to offer what makes us feel secure to all. And if we're thinking about just societies, um, we have to think about security, not just for the self, but what makes me feel secure could apply to all. I, I think I sent you this quote via text the other day. I am reading a book called The Philosophy of Liberation uh, by Enrique Dussel. He's a South American writer and philosopher. And you know, he writes about, I'm not very far into it, and I'm not recommending it. It's a very philosophically heavy book, but um, it, he writes about how the center cannot define liberation. In other words, those at the center of power cannot define what it is to be liberated. Unless we get proximate to the periphery, the answers are always at the periphery. Um, those who have been historically marginalized, left out, um, depressed, um, or repressed, we must go out and touch the edges in order to understand what what the needs of liberation are. Mm -hmm. And that's where I could kind of make some sense out of the events of um, the writers from last week is that they are operating from the center and what they're feeling is fear that the center of power no longer represents them. And and, and so there's been this flip-flop where now the, 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 the claim is, well, we feel that we've been marginalized, but, they're, but, but in actuality, what, what I think they're being asked to do is, nope, you've got to learn how to share this power. You've got to learn how to spread this sort of authority, um, this right to individuality, this right to happiness with the periphery. And therefore, I almost picture them feeling like their center is very small. And, and of course that center is being shaken. 
because we're in the throes of a society that's trying to grow the edges. Um, I do believe that too. I believe that part of our society is, is that we are continually trying to grow the edges. You know, we... Uh, so, uh, uh, in case anybody's listening to this um, <laughs> and wondering, okay, so what did those teachings that are that we're going to struggle with this week mm -hmm. uh, about <clears throat> turn the other cheek go the extra mile give your cloak uh what is what what did that mean in jesus day and mm -hmm. and frankly and i credit walter wink for um walter wink's a scholar who's done a lot of work about <clears throat> the power of evil in the time of of jesus what those teachings mean is to expose, to bring to light, actually, probably at their root, they mean to humiliate the offender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to now kind of, yeah, have a little, to humble them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I would say that for us, because I don't think that's a good value to shoot for, mm -hmm. Shane, but that worked in the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, shame was the way that people were controlled in that time. Yeah. So if somebody, if a master slapped a slave, he would do so with his right hand backhanded. Mm -hmm. Whop, hit you this way. If the slave turns the other cheek, then the master has to use his left hand, mm -hmm. which cannot come in contact with another person mm -hmm. without humiliating the striker because the left hand is used for dealing with bodily processes. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah. So the rule, this, these sort of like the rules of the time, the rules of engagement spoke to how we interpret these words. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you said, you said it, one of the jobs is to expose, to, to shed light yeah. on. And part of this verse is yeah. also like, be like sunshine. And so what does sunshine do? It exposes, it gives us light. It shows us the colors of our walls in the morning and be like rain, which is cleansing. So I, I want to say that I, even as we grapple with what does this mean to love our enemies or those who have done an injustice, the, we, the event of last week were unjust. They were not just. So we have to expose the injustice and not come, I think, into unity with those who have committed injustice, but come into unity against injustice itself. Does that make so, sense? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Another one of the principles of engaged Buddhism is that you don't maintain anger and hatred. Mm -hmm. So we have this naive idealistic belief that Buddhists don't get angry and don't hate. Right. That's not true. The Dalai Lama would say, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. Yeah but it's not a problem. Right. So that's where I, what I was saying earlier is like so often acts of love come out of a, a, a really strong passion about which we might feel angry. But, mm -hmm. um, but when we act from anger as opposed to 
is as you know, so much of Buddhism is observing, observe, observation of the emotion. The folks who, who rioted and stormed the Capitol last week did not observe their anger. They acted from it. And that, that's what the kind of light maybe we, we need to shed on that behavior. It's like, okay, the anger, fine, anger is normal. It, it, it's, an, it's a human emotion that we all feel about um, perceived or real injustices. But what we do with it, I mean, this is this this is basic training, right? What how we teach mm -hmm. our kids. Like when you are angry, don't hit your brother, <laughs> right? right. Um, when you are angry, express it and find a way to repair it. Um, and and I, I think that another thing that we are underscoring is the <clears throat> importance of group solidarity. Mm -hmm. There were people in the Capitol who did things together that they would never do by themselves. Right. Yeah. The group think is powerful, powerful. And people were able to sit at lunch counters because they had people sitting with them. Yeah. So th that's a really good point. How do, do we, if we, if we profess ourselves to be pacifists and lovers of justice, how do we group think around justice? enough Absolutely. to quiet the injustice or, or, or to diminish it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the very last, and we'll get more into this on Sunday, and then maybe we tie this up right now, is um, the very last piece of this section is um, what we've been talking about with Diarmuid uh, Omiraku's book, what we talk about when we talk about the second half of life and what does it mean to have an adult faith. It says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up grow up right. and to grow up is to grapple and struggle and, and feel the anger without acting from that place so that it does harm to another mm -hmm. and we don't live in a grown-up society nope we do not and that's the call for you know i i feel like there are a few few key things that i say over and over and over and over and over. One of them, of course, is about having a daily spiritual practice. And the other is, I think that people who are on the a wise and useful spiritual path embrace as one of the primary values, a commitment to growth, mm -hmm. to intellectual growth, to spiritual growth, psychological growth, relationship growth, skills in communicating in conflict resolution and all of that stuff that's the way adults function yeah and you're right we don't live in a an adult society yeah we're in a massive regression <laughs> yes absolutely this is absolutely true i'm glad you said that that's mm -hmm. the right word for it mm -hmm. we're in a big regression mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so maybe between now and Sunday, we'll come up with a five-step plan on how to love your enemies. <laughs> Today, we're we're in the grappling and in the struggle, but. <laughs> well, I I want to keep coming back to. In my opinion, what it would mean to allow the enemy, those people in the capital, to love us, is our figuring out ways to bring to light the very pernicious form of lying that got us here in the first place. Gosh. Okay. Last thing I'm going to say, I promise when we know how we need to be loved, it, it has good boundaries. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of one of the things that um happens in my marriage is that um and and I I will tell guys this all the time in counseling and particularly in doing couples work. Guys, ask your ask your wife when during the last couple of weeks have you felt the most loved by me? This is an original thing with me, and I'm going to copyright it and make a lot of money someday. It, it works because if I ask my wife, when during the last couple of weeks did you feel most loved by me? She starts going over the last two weeks with a positive filter, mm -hmm. looking for good things, mm -hmm. not bad. Mm -hmm. You know, if I said, when have you been the most disappointed in me? She could come up with that list easily. <laughs> But then when she says it, I have data about how to continue to behave right. that creates a better marriage for me. Mm -hmm. It's just easier to live with a happy woman. Hey, easier <laughs> to live with a kind man, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're done. Okay. I got a twist, um, and I will see you on Sunday. Sure will. See you soon.